morning, I want to begin uh, on, on a mountaintop with you. I'm not sure if you've ever had a mountaintop experience, but uh, I've had moments in my life, a few of them, where I just got to a place where I said, man, I, I can't believe I'm here. Like, I can't believe that I got here. Years and years and years ago, this wasn't possible. Um, and, and last week, my wife and I kind of shared the, the valley experience for us. We shared last week about how when we got married, we were $220,000 in debt without a mortgage. We shared about how that, that brought tremendous stress and anxiety into the beginning stages of our marriage. And I talked about how when I was serving at a church in that season that I had stopped giving anything to that church because we were in such bad financial straits and we really simplified our life. We were working four jobs between us at a time, sharing one car, and um, we paid off a ton of consumer debt. And while we still have debt today, uh, it's no longer a place of bondage for us. It's no longer a place that suffocates us. And, and those years were hard, but they made something possible. Um, and that moment was about four years ago. I was sitting in my office in Phoenix at the church that I was serving, and one of my coworkers came to my office, and um, he was from Mexico. He and his wife were here on work visas, and he was serving part-time on our staff, serving the Hispanic community, and his, his wife was teaching Spanish in a Christian school, and he came in excited, super, super excited, and he shared that he just got a call from his lawyer, and that after being in this country for five years, they were being offered the potential of getting a green card of being here permanently, of no longer worrying if they could stay. And, and so he came in and he was excited. I said, well, what, what, do you, what do you need? And he says, we need a lot of money in a very short time. And so would you pray that we could find the money so we could afford this green card? And so I went home to my wife and I told her about the conversation. And I said, I think this is something we can use our generosity fund for. You see, when we were getting ready to get married, we had a, an unfortunate event that I don't have time to go into, uh, but we needed about $2,500 in cash in a very short amount of time. And uh, we weren't sharing a lot, but we were praying a lot, and a man in our church figured out that we had a need. He took us to coffee, and uh, we didn't know what was happening, and he, he said, how much do you guys need? And he, he told me, he said, we need 2500 bucks." And so he pulled his checkbook out, and he wrote us a check for $2,500. He said, this isn't a gift, this is a loan but I'm not going to charge you interest and I'm not going to give you a date to pay, you back, to pay me back. We paid him back in two years and we took him to dinner and him and his wife that, that night we gave them the last check and that night we decided that we wanted to do the same thing for somebody else. And so we created a fund, we called it the Generosity Fund and so above and beyond what we give to our church, above and beyond what we give to other good causes, we set aside money every time we get paid. Sometimes it's a lot, sometimes it's a little so that we're prepared when God presents us with an opportunity and so I went home and I said, Dean, I think we should give them some money from the generosity fund. She goes, okay, how much? And I'm thinking I'm being really generous. Like, I think I'm really going out there. I go, I go $500. And she goes, eh, I'm like, okay, 250 And she goes, how about 1000 And I was like, oh. you know, I kind of caught my breath for a second. Um, but I said, okay. And so I went to the office that day with a check in an envelope. And I walked into his office and I gave it to him. He didn't know what was in it. Went back to my office, and about two minutes later, he comes in, and he closes the door, and he's just weeping. He's like, Scott, we, we need to give money to our lawyer tonight. And I came to work today $1,000 short. And our $1,000 cut the gap down to zero. Now, I, I stood here last week and told you that I wasn't tithing to the church I was working at. So this is not like a, I'm an amazing guy, you know, look at me story. Um, but it is the essence of what I said last week when I said, I don't want something from you, I want something for you. 
if you could know the feeling that it was to sit there four years ago and watch God move in our heart with the exact amount of money that our friend needed after we had not been able to give a cent to the church we believed in. That's what I want for you. I want you to discover that kind of freedom. I want you to discover that kind of moment where you watch God put resources in your hand that can transform someone else's life. See, that's the day I learned that generosity is much more fulfilling than greed. I've bought a lot of iPhones in my life. No iPhone felt like that. No new pair of jeans felt like that. Buying a house didn't feel like that. Buying a new car didn't feel like that. See, I learned that day that generosity is where it's at and that God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. And that's why in this series, we're talking about idols. We're talking about the things that get in the way of us experiencing that. And we're talking about the fact that when we look to anything as more important than God, anything that we seek to what give us what only God can give us, that those are idols and they lead us away from the life God has for us. We said last week that our relationship with money reveals the state of our heart. And that's why when we talk about money, it's not about dollars and cents. It's about our hearts. It's about what's going on deep inside of us. And we answered the question last week, why is it so easy for money to become an idol? And we said three things. We said that it's, it's because we look to money for security to help us feel like we're okay, like we're going to be all right for another day. We look to money for significance, for a sense of value. How much we have means that, that we're a, a bigger, more important person. And, and for satisfaction, that we have this desire that we're hoping that money will meet. And we said last week that it was going to be part one of a two-part series. And, and that last week was going to be, why do we struggle with money? And this week was going to be, how do, we, how do we find a way to relate to money in a way that it doesn't become our God? that we keep God in focus. And so this morning, the big idea I want to share with you is this. To experience freedom from the idol of money, we must replace it with the riches we have in Christ. To experience freedom from the idol of money, we must replace it with the riches we have in Christ. We said a few weeks ago that that you can't remove an idol, you have to replace it. Many of us know this is because we've had different idols in our lives, and so we've just kind of traded them. Kind of like you trade in a new car or you trade in your phone. You kind of just trade in your idols. And so we're not just looking to trade money for something else. We're looking to replace it with the one true God and the riches we have in him. And so this morning, we're going to be in a text in Luke chapter 19. Luke is one of the three, it's a third of the four biographies of Jesus Luke was a doctor, and he wrote his account based upon the eyewitness stories of those who followed Jesus. And, and in Luke 19, we, we learn about a character that maybe is pretty familiar for you if you've been around church before, or you grew up in the church, or, or you've seen Bible stories. It's, a, it's a, about a man who's vertically challenged. Uh, his name is Zacchaeus. And, and we often talk about Zacchaeus, um, you know, as a, as a wee little man, or we talk about him as a, uh, a tax collector. But what we have to know is that Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. What we're going to learn today is that he was an arch tax collector. 
Like if you know a person who's ever gotten a pink Mary Kay before, it's kind of like that, but it's a, a bad thing, you know. Um, they're way up, you know, in Mary Kay. And, uh, and he was way up in tax collectors. He was stealing from people, and then he was stealing from people who were stealing from people. He probably was one of the most wealthy men in his town. He lived in a town called Jericho, which was a very um, commerce-centered city. So we're talking a major city like, like Los Angeles or San Francisco or Phoenix or Denver. It was a major city. And, and he was somebody that was not only um, admired for his wealth, but he was hated for how he got his wealth. And what we're going to learn today is, uh, is that change came in his heart, and then it played out in his finances. And so this morning, I'm going to share with you three lessons about heart change from the life of Zacchaeus. And we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 19. Here's what it says. So it says that Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and he cut up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass that way. The first lesson we learn about Zacchaeus and heart change is that we will change when we become desperate for God. Change comes when we become desperate for God. See, Zacchaeus maybe on the outside, doesn't seem like a desperate person, but, but what he engages in in his world is signs of desperation. See, in that world, um, no matter what level you were of wealth, you were a person of honor. You cared about your dignity and your opinion in the eyes of other people. And so when Zacchaeus runs and climbs a tree... He does two things that would be very dishonorable. Men didn't run, especially the most wealthy man in town. You, know, you, you paid people to run for you. And, and you didn't climb a tree. That's what a child did. And so Zacchaeus, he runs. Then he climbs a tree just so he can get close to Jesus. See, he so wants to see Jesus that he no longer cares if other people think he's undignified, if he's dishonorable, because he wants to get that close to Jesus. Some of you in your financial life, you know that experience when you began to be desperate for change. Some of you, because of life's circumstances, have stood on a street corner and you've held a sign and you've begged. Not because you were proud, but because you were desperate. Some of you have taken second and third jobs, jobs that you think are below you so that you can provide for your family and get them where they need to be. Some of you have applied for food stamps, not because you wanted to, but because you didn't want your family to go hungry. See, desperation, it puts us in a place where we're open to consider things we would have never considered before. And Zacchaeus is at that place. He's so desperate that he's willing to change and open himself up. When we get to that place, we answer the question, what do you want the most? With, I want change. See, there's, there's a statement that's been told to me before. People don't change until the pain of staying where they are becomes greater than what they fear. And many of you 
have struggled with your finances and the reason you haven't changed is you're more afraid than you are uncomfortable. And when you get to the place where what you want the most is change and something new, then you'll overcome your fears because you go, I just can't keep living this way anymore. And that's Zacchaeus. It's amazing what happens to us when we get desperate. That's why one of the things I want to talk to you about today is if you're at a place where you're like, Scott, I'm in over my head. What you shared last week is where I was. Then we would like to meet you in the midst of that and help you. I talked with a friend of mine yesterday who spent the last 20 years counseling families, thousands of families who are caught up in debt. And I said, hey, I'm getting ready to share with my church tomorrow about money. Would you be willing to come and help? And he said, yeah, sure. So when you walked in today, you got a, a hi there card. And if you didn't already turn it in, if, if you write on that card your name and you just say, hey, I'm in over my head with money, and you put it in the welcome table when you leave today, we'll follow up with you this week and connect you with my friend Chuck. He said, Scott, I'm, I'm willing to help. So first, we'll change when we become desperate for God. We learn more about Zacchaeus in verse 5. Then Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was, and he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully, that is Zacchaeus. And when they saw it, and just so you know, there's always a they in your life. (laughs) Whenever anything good happens, there's always a they. And they all grumbled because that's what they do. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The second lesson we learned about heart change is that Jesus draws near to those who long for him. Jesus draws near to those who long for him. See, see the they who begin questioning what Jesus did, they're, they're questioning Jesus moving towards Zacchaeus because they think Jesus should be moving away from Zacchaeus. See, in verse verse 7, it says, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. See, they believe that if you're a sinner, that that important men, spiritual men, messiahs, should back away. They shouldn't move closer. And yet, that isn't Jesus. Jesus draws near to those who long for him. He draws near to those who are desperate for him. And in this day, nothing could be a greater sign of that than sharing a meal. See, in that day, if we broke bread, that meant we were friends. And so if I invited you to dinner or you invited me to dinner, it was a sign of friendship. It was a sign that you wanted to have a relationship. It wasn't just a burger and fries and a Coke. It was a sign of connection. And so Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, I see you becoming undignified and desperate for change. And I'm not going to run from that. I'm going to run to that because that's what I see in your heart. And I want to meet you there. In James chapter 4, the brother of Jesus writes these words. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I I can't tell you how many times, and my wife and I were in that season of just being crushed in financial bondage, how close we felt to God. How many times he showed up and provided. I mean, that day when we were at Starbucks and that man handed us the check, that was a a moment of worship that that, that rivaled what happened here on the stage today. 
I knew that God was real. I knew that God saw what we were trying to do. And I knew that God was saying, hey, this is going to be hard. This is going to hurt. But you're going to be okay. And when you move towards Jesus in desperation, he doesn't promise to just bring somebody who's going to pay off your debt. He doesn't bring somebody who just magically gets Visa and MasterCard to forget you ever owed them anything. You know? He doesn't change the real estate market where your house doubles in value in a week. But he draws near to you. And he says, we're going to do this together. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake to you. I'm going to be close to you. And then an interesting thing happens over this dinner with Zacchaeus. This is what Zacchaeus says. He stood and says to the Lord, now mind you, I haven't skipped anything. He goes to his house for dinner, and then this happens. This is all we know. He says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Half my stuff, I'm giving it away. And if I have defrauded anyone, now let's be honest, it's not an if. (laughs) I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The third lesson we learn from Zacchaeus is that heart change produces financial freedom. Heart change produces financial freedom. Now, as I mentioned, there's there's no mention of Jesus saying, hey, Zacchaeus, you know you're a pretty bad dude, right? You know, you, should, you shouldn't steal from people. Hey, this is a nice house, but it's, it's come at a great expense to your whole community. He doesn't, he doesn't lay a guilt trip on him. He doesn't preach a sermon at him. They just break bread together, and then Zacchaeus has this moment. I wish all change came like that, you know? Because I could just have dinner with people who are messed up, and then they could just change. I mean, I, I wish that's how it worked, you know? I'm sure people are thinking the same thing for me. If I could just have dinner with Scott, the world would be a different place, you know? but that isn't how it works. It seems that that over that dinner and over that conversation, the spirit was at work convicting Zacchaeus' heart, and we know that his heart changed because we see the financial freedom, because we see the fruit. And yet so often this is not our tactic. Our tactic is guilt and fear and shame and condemnation. Scott Sauls says this in his book, Befriend, He says, I've never met a single person who fell in love with Jesus because Christians scolded them about their ethics or morality. But I've met a lot of people who became Christians because Christians loved them across the lines of difference. See, that's hard. We're we're much more skilled at scolding than we are loving. Scolding feels far more powerful and a, and, a, and a controlling tactic than love. And yet, the change that comes in Zacchaeus' heart is profound. Because in that day, they had laws about what you did if you stole from someone. In that day, if you stole from someone, as Zacchaeus had done, the laws that were written in the Bible said that you owed them what you stole plus 20% interest. So Zacchaeus, according to the law, he should have paid them back and then put 20% on top. But that isn't what he says. 
In in verse 8 and 9, he says, If I have stolen anything from anyone, I'll repay them fourfold. That's not 20% interest. That's 300% interest. And Jesus didn't tell him to do that. He chose it himself. See, heart change can only produce that. I, I can make you follow a law. I mean, you drive down the road, you go into a certain city. If you drive into Mayer, you drive into Chino, you're kind of watching for the cops sitting right there. So you, you follow the law. But you don't go above and beyond that, you know. You don't do that all the time. No, only that can come from your heart. And so the heart change that came produced financial freedom. Because somewhere along the way, Zacchaeus became disillusioned. He became unsettled. This way of living was no longer working. And if I'm honest with you, that's what I've been praying for you. I've been praying over the last few weeks as I knew these weeks were coming because this is not the most comfortable sermon to preach on, especially two weeks in a row. My prayer for you is that you would be disillusioned. My prayer is that you would be unsettled. That you would realize that if you keep living for more money, more will never be enough. If you keep living for the next promotion or the next bonus or the bigger house or the upgrade, you'll get it. And you'll realize that if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. That's been my prayer for you. I know it's a fun prayer, you know. You're excited, I'm praying it. (laughs) But I've been disillusioned in the past. And it was that disillusionment that led to desperation that led to heart change. And that's what I want for you. See, in Ecclesiastes 5, thousands of years ago, King Solomon said these words, the richest man alive, he who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You know this. Some of you make a great living, and it's not enough. You want more. And more is like a hungry stomach that's never filled. And, and you're giving your life for that. Timothy Keller, who has been a huge influence on me as I think about idols, he said this. He said, money cannot save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. See, some of you, it's not that you want to make more money, it's that you want to save more money. And you think if you save more money, that will give you a sense of safety and control. Guess what? You can have a million dollars in the bank and still get cancer. You can have a huge 401k that you you and your wife are going to share, and then she gets hit by a drunk driver. Money can't save you from tragedy. And it can't give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. What breaks the power of money over us, Keller says, is not redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. So many of us say that we believe that Jesus is all-powerful and he is the source of change. But man, if you look at our lives, we think it's us. I'm going to have a longer quiet time. I'm going to give more to church. I'm going to volunteer more. I'm not going to go to small group every other week. I'm actually going to go every week, you know. 
And if I do that, then, then God will make this okay. And that's just not true. Keller says, rather it is deepening the understanding of the salvation of Christ, what you have in him, and then living out the changes that understanding makes in your heart. See, so many of us were what Craig Rochelle calls practical atheists. We believe God exists, and then practically we live as if he doesn't. We sing about it on Sunday, and then if you go into Monday, we're living as if it's all on us. And if you respond to the issue of money as an idol in your life within that framework, you will feel more guilty and only end up more in bondage. Because you will keep trying to free yourself in your own power. You cannot work yourself free. But you can develop habits that enable God to work in your heart to free you. With the time that I have left, I want to share with you five observations I've made about those people who defeat the idol of money. But this is what I've observed in the Bible and in people I've watched who've defeated the idol of money. This is what I've seen in them. The first is they have a growing understanding of the riches they have in Christ. The people that I watch who who overcome bondage to money and find freedom there, they are constantly growing in their understanding of all that Christ has done for them. Paul describes this kind of attitude in Ephesians 3. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The people that I watch who defeat money are constantly gaining new perspective on all they have in Christ. They haven't arrived. They're constantly recognizing more and more, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is how he's provided for me. This is how he's alive. This is what I have in him. And if this is a struggle for you, I have a really easy activity. When you go home this week, go to Ephesians chapter 1 with your Bible and a notepad. And in that chapter, make a list under the heading, In Christ. And write down everything that Paul says that you have in Christ. There'll be like 10 or 15 things on that list. See, the more and more we, understanding, we understand the riches we have in Christ, the more we can replace the idol of money with that. Because we realize that money can never buy us what we have in Christ. So, people who defeat the idol of money, they have a growing understanding of the riches they have in Christ. Second, they acknowledge that God owns everything and they're managers. The people I know, the people I observe... Who, who are free from the idol of money, they acknowledge, hey, God owns it all and I'm just managing it for him. In Ecclesiastes 5, we were just there. The writer says, as he came naked from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for himself for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. There's that old cliche that you never see a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It's great while it's here. You're going to die and somebody else is going to enjoy it. And so I have friends, and I first time they said this, I thought they were a little bit weird. And I said, hey, we're taking my car or yours. Like, we, can take, we can take God's. Now, this is God's car. You know, he, he got it for me, and I'm just managing it. 
And they get up and go, I'm going to get out of God's bed and I'm going to go into God's bathroom and I'm going to drink God's coffee and then I'm going to go in God's car to God's job. And it's a little bit weird, I'll be honest. But they're fighting entitlement. They're reminding themselves that they have the ability to go to that job and do that job because of God. And there are other people who would love to be able to go work a job, who would love to have a car they're not worried about turning on in the morning. And so they say, look, this is all God's, and I'm just managing it for him, which means it can go and it can come. The third thing that I notice is that they are humble and they're on guard against idolatry. Those who overcome the, the idol of money never stop being on guard against that idol returning. So that's the thing. There is no place for arrogance in the life of a Christian. I meet people, oh, this person is the, the, the most mature, godly person ever. No, they're arrogant. They're not mature. They may have been to a lot of Bible studies. They may have memorized a lot of verses. They may be older than me. But if they're arrogant, they're not a little Jesus. So we have to constantly be on guard. We read this passage last week where, where Jesus says, take care and be on your guard. Be a soldier against all covetousness. You have to fight this. You are at war every day. You're bombarded with at least 3,000 ads that tell you that you are not enough unless you buy X. And if you buy X, then you'll be enough. Until next year when they have a new model, and then you should buy the next one. It's called planned obsolescence. Or covetousness. The fourth thing I notice is that the people who find financial freedom, they practice gratitude daily. Every day, they give thanks. Not just in November, but every day. The second most common question I get as a pastor is, Scott, how do I know God's will for my life? And there's a verse in the Bible that tells you what God's will is. You want to know what it is? 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Hey, what'd you do on Sunday? I went to church. What'd you hear about? I heard about God's will for my life. Oh, you know what it is? Yep. Give thanks in all circumstances. So wherever you are today, God's will for you is for you to give thanks for this. Some of you are like, this is a terrible sermon, you know? Like this is, I am not in a good place. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you can't thank God for what you have now, you won't thank him for what you have later. Because you'll have the tendency to take credit for what you get later. If you can't thank God for what he's given you now, then you'll be entitled to what you get later because you'll think you created it. But if you can thank God with little, you can thank God for the increase. That's why success is almost the worst thing that happens to some of us sometimes. Because if, if you take credit for what only God can do on the way down, you'll take credit for what God can only do on the way up. 
And you have to practice gratitude when you don't have what you want so that you can practice it when God blesses you with that. And the fifth thing that I notice about people who overcome the idol of money is they look for opportunities to be generous. They look for opportunities to be generous. One of the first questions I got when I became pastor of Cornerstone was, Scott, are you going to preach tithing? And one of my responses to that um, question is that I don't think the best question for us to ask when it comes to all that God has blessed us with is how much do I have to give? If you've caught a picture of all that Christ has done for you and you have a growing understanding of the riches you have for him and the question you're asking in a response is, how much do I have to give back? That isn't a money issue. That's a heart issue. Because you can give 10% to God and still have your heart far from him. Now the question isn't how much do I have to give? The question is how much can I give? That's Zacchaeus. Isn't it Jesus? Hey, Jesus, I, I, I messed over the whole city. How much do I have to give them back? No, he says, how much can I give back? And he gives generously above and beyond what he has to. That's why in the New Testament, all the stories Jesus tells about people who give, they're all ridiculously generous. Mark 12, a widow gives her whole resources. Mark 14, a woman breaks a jar of a perfume that's worth one year's salary. I mean, that's way, way beyond Christian Dior, you know? That's way beyond that. These are the stories. Paul in 2 Corinthians tells the story of the Macedonians who gave out of their poverty, not of their wealth. So I don't want us asking, hey, what's the minimum I owe God for all that he's given me? No, the question I want us to ask is, how much can I give? And so what I would say to you when it comes to generosity, here's my generosity challenge. It's threefold. Wherever you are financially, here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to start giving now sacrificially based on a percentage and not just thinking about church. But I want you to think about, okay, I don't feel like I can give right now but I can probably give something. See, when my wife and I, when we weren't tithing at all, we couldn't go from zero to 10%. If we did, that means we would, we would stop paying Visa and MasterCard. And I didn't think God was honored by us giving to the church and having collections calling us. So we started giving about one or 2%. And within two or three years, we were up to 10. And so, and then, and now we're beyond that. So I would say to you, start giving now. If you're not giving anything, $5 is a win. $10 is a win. $20 is a win. And you go, Scott, I don't trust the church. Fine. Then find some other place to be generous. And then come talk to us about why you don't trust us. But start giving. Start giving sacrificially. See, we can't say, how much do I have to give if we worship one who sacrificed for us? So when we give, it probably should hurt a little bit. Because if you don't give sacrificially and it hurts, you're still giving out of comfort. And then third, I, I challenge you to give based upon a percentage so that you're not just giving when you feel like it. Because if you only give when you feel like it, you won't give very often. 
I just know that because bills come to my house every day. I get junk mail and bills. I don't know about you. Somebody send me a, a handwritten note for goodness sakes, you know, but like all I get are bills. And so if I only give when I feel like it, I'm not going to give very often. See, the, the truth is we don't give to get. We give because we've been given. So I'm not here telling you, hey, you need to give to the church because God will bless you. That's just not true. If you give, then all of a sudden all your debts will go away. No. No, we give because of the riches that we have in Christ. See, we started this message on a mountaintop. And it was what was possible. And what I want for you is not for you to give money to this church. That isn't the win. The win is you realizing that God is blessing somebody else through you. The reason why I never want to go back into that kind of debt is not because of the stress it brought to my marriage, although I'm thankful I'm not living in that place anymore. The reason that I want to be able to stay where I am is I want to be able to be ready to watch God use me. That's what you just stood up here and said. I I want God to use me in the Czech Republic. I want God to use me in Prescott or Prescott Valley or Chino in Prescott Lakes or Pronghorn or, or God to use me at Prescott High or God to use me at Taylor Hicks or God to use me down at the square. We all want God to use us to know that our lives mattered and they made a difference. That's why we have to be financially free. That's why generosity is so fun. And there's no new thing that you can buy that'll ever compete with that. So that's what I want for you. I want you to be able to sing like we just did this morning. This is my story. This is my song. This is where I was and this is where I am and I'm going to be used by God to bless somebody else. No iPhone can ever compete with that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you're alive and at work. And I pray that we could be honest enough about where we're at to begin having an honest conversation with you about what it would mean for us to be free. God, some of us are in a a pretty tough spot financially. We never planned on getting here, but we are. And yet, I hope that the words that my friends hear this morning is not shame. If there is shame in this room, we know, God, it is not from you because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you meet us right where we are. You you came and took on human form so that we could know that you weren't standing above us to condemn us, but you were coming alongside us to free us. And so we pray that we might open our hearts to you. We pray that we might become unsettled and dissatisfied with where we are and become desperate for you to change us because we know that when we move close to you, you move close to us and that's where the change begins. So I pray for my friends. I pray that they would look back on these days as the time when you gave them a vision for what their freedom might be for. We're not just free so we can buy stuff with money we do have. We're we're free so that you can use us to make a difference. And so I pray that freedom would reign in this place, that shackles would be broken, 
that idols would be smashed so that they could discover the reason why you came. In your name we pray, amen. We're going to sing a song this morning. Um, and I'd encourage you to, to respond how God is leading you. It's often when God speaks to our hearts that we begin having an inner dialogue about what we should or shouldn't do. And before you leave today, my challenge for you is to respond to what God's leading you to do. Would you stand and sing? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.